Hello, this is Mike, previously known as Spartan. And this is Sam, previously known as Walla. Please be advised that after episode 10, Knight is no longer with the show. We have chosen to keep the episodes in which they co-hosted intact for continuity and to make as many episodes as possible available to the listeners. Thank you. Hello, and welcome to the first episode of Hardtack, the atomic bombing of Hiroshima. Presented by Historical Studies Military History, HSMH. I am your host, Spartan, and with me are our co-hosts and crew, Knight and Walla. Without further ado, let's get started. Hard Tack is a military history podcast and contains mature themes, content, and some crude language. Listener discretion is advised. We do not claim to be experts in any of the topics discussed. The opinions and analysis expressed are that of the participants alone. Now, put on your Kevlar, secure your lickies and chewies, and prepare to take cover for this episode of Hard Tack. With the 77th anniversary of the bombing of Hiroshima just three days away, it seemed appropriate that this would be the topic of our first episode. Along with a clinical and operational-oriented examination of the topic, the squad and I will be focusing heavily on and discussing some of the stories from eyewitnesses and survivors of the event. Their experiences in the hours, days, and weeks after the bomb detonated deserve to be heard. We will also have some discussion on the ethics of the use of atomic weapons, as well as touch on some science as it relates to the bomb. First off, it seems necessary to discuss the question of why Hiroshima, who made the decision, and what made this particular city a desirable target for the detonation of the bomb. Speaking specifically on why Hiroshima, um, this, this was kind of a point that I think a lot of people overlook. And I'm not sure that it's something that's been very, very explored uh, by historians, let alone uh, your, your armchair historians. I, I think everybody can agree on that. During some of the research that I did in preparation, um, that, that was a question that, that I had um, and, and something that I wanted to bring to uh, the attention of the group. So it, I found it interesting as to the WHO, uh, the United States military actually created a target committee. Uh, they convened on the 27th of April, 1945, which, if you look at it, is not that far in advance of the dropping of the bomb, considering it happened just a few months later in August. Previously, top-secret documents that have since been declassified and selecting a target, the following criteria were considered. So they looked at the flight range of the B-29s. Uh, there were three B-29 bombers that took off uh, in this operation. The flight range of the B-29 bombers uh, was just over 5,000 miles, and the actual mission range from Tenian to Hiroshima and back uh, was less than that, totaling out to about 3,000 miles. 
visual bombing essential, what that means, uh, the altitude from which the bomb was dropped, the weather, and uh, they needed a target of high visibility. Those were all priority factors and consideration of the target, as well as the anticipated effect of the bomb blast and damage expected. This last bullet point really stuck out is a priority to me, but also uh, really stuck out to me. Something that they took into consideration when it came to the human element of selecting a target. When, when you look at the anticipated effect of the blast, as well as the damage expected, you can't just take into consideration the, the damage it would have on infrastructure and structure, but also the damage it's going to have on human lives. The criteria listed in part answers the question of why Hiroshima was selected, though only partially. As the committee continued to evaluate possible locations, one individual in particular, Colonel William P. Fisher, offered that, given the range of the B-29s, the city of Hiroshima should be given consideration as it also remained the largest untouched target not on the 21st Bomber Command priority list. What that means, looking at the 21st Bomber Command, it, this was a special unit, uh, part of the 20th Air Force in the Mariana Islands, and their goal, their job, was strategic bombing during World War II. So, in regards to strategic bombing, they were specifically targeting military infrastructure. They were targeting uh, manufacturing and factory production of war material. What this meant was that given the weather conditions, estimated and desired destruction, the range of the bombers, consideration of relevance to other strategic bombing efforts specific to the 21st, Hiroshima was the most viable target. Hiroshima was also further selected as the United States hoped it would demonstrate the destructive power of a new weapon. The U.S. alone had access to. So, realistically, Hiroshima served to showcase the destructive power of nuclear weapons. That statement alone thing, is very disturbing to consider. I guess one thing I want to just add here, though, is I take it that the range of the bombers, or you talked about like how there was already strategic planning occurring already. I take that's referring to the fire bombings that had already taken place around Tokyo. Yeah, you know, and I'm so glad you brought that up, Knight. Yes, the fire bombings in Tokyo are often um, either unknown or overshadowed by the dropping of nuclear bombs on both Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which you know occurred three days later on August 9th. Um, the fire bombing of Tokyo, uh, statistically, at least as far as estimates go, was actually much more destructive than the nuclear bombs. However. However, the nuclear bombs that were dropped on both Hiroshima and Nagasaki were destructive immediately, whereas firebombing took place over time. The destruction yeah, you have to, you was... have to take over time. <laughs> it, right, right. You know, so they, they continuously bombed Tokyo to the point where they raised the city. I mean, the city was absolutely destroyed. The casualties rivaled, if not surpassed, that of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, not collectively, but separately initially and in the aftermath and those casualties not being just military oh no 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 not not at all um and that's that's the disturbing part both of the the firebombing that occurred uh in tokyo but also yes the nuclear bombs that that were dropped on both uh nagasaki and and hiroshima um civilian casualties were a major factor and that that goes back into that that last statement that Hiroshima served to showcase the destructive power of nuclear weapons. They they wanted the world to see now that this technology had been developed, what kind of impact it would have should a future war of nuclear characteristic 
be exercised on a large scale. Given that Hiroshima is to showcase this destructive power of nuclear weapons, which of course that makes sense as a means to show off to the Soviet Union, that being like the larger up-and-coming enemy, probably. Yeah, and no, 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 that's very true, you know. Um, considering the fact that even at this point during during World War II, there was a lot of competition uh, between the United States and the Soviets, which, of course, played out in, in, in the, inter, the interwar years, uh, in the Cold War, right? There was that, that showcasing of, yes, nuclear weapons are dangerous and wildly destructive, but beyond that, there was a little bit of flexing that, that seems to have occurred uh, between some of the superpowers and, and the allied um, uh, players that, that participated in World War II. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely correct on that. Uh, in an article from NPR's Morning Edition in 2015, it was stated that a site that allowed for maximum destruction and loss of life should be selected to oppress upon the entire world what a future nuclear war would mean for mankind. Uh, I mean, this this very succinctly sums up exactly what we were just discussing. Um, and when you talk about civilian casualties as opposed to uh, military considerations, yes, the loss of life on 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 a civilian as well as a military scale was was really the big point that they wanted to drive home. Um, and again, Japan at this point had dedicated itself to a a national level of of you know um a national level of commitment to the war where they were willing to arm and militarize the civilian population down to the last uh woman and child really uh as opposed to the the ultimate shame which they considered to be surrender an excerpt from a letter written by physicist edward teller a collaborator in the creation of the bomb read our only hope is in getting the facts of our results before the people this might help to convince everybody that the next war would be fatal. For this purpose, actual combat use might be the best thing. Uh, I, found, I found this excerpt from this letter to be extremely disturbing because as, as a physicist, as a, a participating creator of this nuclear capability, this bomb, this weapon, this individual stated very clearly that actual combat use might be the best option in informing and convincing not just the victims, but the entire world of the capabilities of what a nuclear war would look like. And that, that's really disturbing considering that they took civilian casualties into consideration and still carried out uh, the dropping of not just one, but two nuclear bombs. My question is, though, did Japan have access to their own nuclear weapons? Like, were they developing their own nuclear weapons at the time? I do know the... Imperialist government, as soon as Hiroshima had occurred, there was a discussion about almost to the physicists of Japan, like, hey, can you replicate this as soon as Hiroshima occurred? And of course, that answer was a no. Obviously, they couldn't replicate that. So there was an avenue. So that avenue was, of course, briefly just before Nagasaki explored imperialist government side of things. And then the other thing to consider about when you say that the warnings weren't heeded, there was there's this is actually creates an interesting division between the populace and then of the imperial government itself. Yeah, uh, yeah. I do, because one can re point out like in the case of Nagasaki, um, this one woman, she was just a girl, and apparently they had these they dropped all these flyers 
However, the problem was that a lot of the Imperial Guards collected the flyers. And these right. flyers, of course, warned the Nagasaki citizens that, hey, there's a bombing coming, but not a single citizen got them because they were all collected by the Imperial Guards. Her father, she was just lucky that her father had managed to just pick one up. That was it. And then he always had to instruct them to hide in the bomb shelter and all that. But there is that kind of distinction, like, sure, Truman gave a warning, but who heard the warning? The majority of the populace certainly didn't. Exclusively, only the imperial government did. So why would the imperial government want to hide something like that? Is that to stop fear from... Um... It, was a, it was a method to stop fear from settling in. It was also to, a method to just keep, almost like this morale to keep going, but also... There was also this general disdain of like the populace versus the imperial government in the first place over the world. Like it's just continuing on and, you know, people just want the war to stop. And if someone's threatening, oh, we're going to bomb the whole place, you know, that. <laughs> yeah. If you're, tr if you're trying to convince people to continue war, that's not really the greatest of news. Yeah, no, that's a great point. Uh, and and it, it wasn't specific to just Nagasaki because the the United States made an effort to drop a lot of leaflets and informative pamphlets and in Japanese and native Japanese amongst the populace uh, via airdrop to inform them that this this terrible destruction was, you know, going to be exercised against the nation. Uh, but you're you're absolutely correct that a lot of that was rounded up or it was fun as as western propaganda to not be trusted that that they were simply trying to get them to surrender um and this goes into a discussion of of what they call uh yamato damashi or the japanese spirit and it's a term for the the cultural values and characteristics of the japanese people which if you look at japanese culture uh was very ingrained very deep and i mean it went back to to uh militarized governments when you when you talk about shoguns shogunates and, you know, the, the phrase was coined in the Heinen period, and, and, and that's going back into some of these different dynasties and some of the, the mindsets that the Japanese had. And the transition from a shogunate government to a more democratic Western-style government, it, it became an issue of how do we blend traditional Japanese culture with Western ideals of government and one thing that didn't die off was that japanese spirit the yamato damashi and and part of that was surrender was was looked upon as as shameful um but in the same token you know you have the imperial guard you have these soldiers that are rounding up uh what is being spun again as as wartime propaganda as lies as as a western attempt to control and influence and yeah, a lot of these people were unaware of the fact that this was a true risk that they needed to face. Despite the many warnings anyway from the US government, was there any other diplomatic solution that could have been explored before they actually resulted in using nuclear weapons? Like, was every other avenue truly exhausted before making this decision? This is a big topic of discussion, uh, even today, I think. And... There are many historians uh, that are of the mindset that from the moment that Japan um, attacked Pearl Harbor, there was no turning back, simply because at that point, the Japanese government had committed to um, the war effort. And in keeping with Japanese tradition, 
anything but victory or surrender uh, was inexcusable. And, and this was a time where, yes, there were no more shogunates, but during this particular period of Japanese history, the military was really running the government. Uh, it had kind of it had kind of receded back into what it what it was traditionally. Um, and there's actually a a great excerpt from from a book I have. Um, this particular book is is titled Japan at War and Oral History. Uh, it's written by uh, a a married couple. One is a native Japanese. Her name is Haruko Taya Cook. Um, her mother was actually a survivor uh, of of uh, the nuclear bombing. And her husband, uh, Dr. Theodore F. Cook, who, who's currently still a uh, doctor of history and specifically in Japanese history um, at a university here in the United States. So he's still actively functioning. Um, but there's this, there's this really great uh, excerpt in this book from a Japanese diplomat. And I, and I, I love what he, what he said about it. Uh, his name was Kase uh, Toshikazu. And this particular excerpt is titled A Failure of Diplomacy. And he states in the book that as diplomats, we must prevent war. And he states that the heaven-sent task of the diplomat is to conduct friendly negotiations to the mutual benefit of both sides. Um, from that perspective, he goes on, the Japanese-American negotiations in 1941 were, for me, a matter of the deepest regret. We tried not to sacrifice Japan's natural, national interest while also respecting America's. We sought compromise. Although we faced the greatest obstacles, we never gave up hope, not until the last moment. When we finally realized it was not possible to avoid the outbreak of war, I felt a disappointment I cannot express in words. And he states that to, uh, the, the work of diplomats is obviously to avoid conflict as much as possible. But he goes on to say that war represents bankruptcy to diplomats. So when you talk about other alternatives, when you talk about were there, were there other diplomatic means, those were being explored. However, when you have a military government like Japan had at the time, and not everybody's on the same page because they truly weren't. You have your diplomats that, yeah, you know, face value. Um, they look like they're doing everything they can to prevent war. And I, and I truly believe that individuals like Kase-san here uh, were doing the best they could. But at the same time that some of those negotiations were going on in the United States, Pearl Harbor was being planned. Mm. So there was a disconnect between the social diplomatic aspect of the Japanese government versus the military desires. So with that disconnect... No, I, I'm not sure that any other diplomatic solution could have been arrived at when there was that division within the government itself. There was, there is one interesting avenue to this that I have heard about, and part of this is a critique about the post. The sorry, let me get this name right. Potsdam Declaration. Yes. And in that declaration, it was the decision to make it uncon unconditional surrender, and. That has been critiqued because you have the, because the Japanese government and especially after the Soviet entry into the war, they had stated that they wanted to surrender, but only on the condition that the the sovereign ruler was to, was to kind of save face sure. in that situation. And however, because of the U.S.'s or actually, I should say the Potsdam Declaration, the insistence on unconditional surrender, 
that physical way. And so there's like this bigger critique of like emphasis on trying to make it unconditional surrender. And that really wasn't the wise avenue here. Right. So you're speaking on uh, Emperor Hirohito, uh, posthumously known as Emperor Showa, because, yeah, I mean, he he was the ruling emperor uh, between, you know, um, during the Showa period of Japan. And he didn't pass until 1989, uh, which is well after World War II. But yeah, the in, in, in Japanese culture, the emperor is seen as a divine representation. He is the he's not just a ruler. He's a divine ruler. And I think it's exactly what you said. You know, when, when you demand unconditional surrender, saving face becomes an issue, especially for a proud culture, traditional culture, um, like what is possessed then and even today in, in, in Japan. Yeah, there, there were opportunities where Japan uh, leaned towards the potential of surrender, but they didn't see it as surrender. I think it was more of a, a ceasefire and an armistice um, as opposed to unconditional surrender. I think it was a mutual let's meet in the middle, whereas the United States said no. Um, the Allies said no. This will be the circumstances in which this war will, will, will stop. And the United States was unwilling not unable. It's very, it's, it's very important that I think that that differentiation is made. They weren't unable. They were unwilling to accept anything other than unconditional surrender from Japan. And that, that in the long term, um, yeah, it did cost some lives. It did cost some lives. And it, and, it, and it prolonged the war, realistically. Perhaps even the bombings themselves could have been prevented. Ah, yeah. I, I mean, there's a lot of speculation about that, uh, depending on how you want to look at it. You know, having 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 lived in Japan and uh, for for you know for over three years and and becoming immersed as I allowed myself to be in Japanese society and becoming close to to some Japanese, I know that at least some of the the younger Japanese uh, that I that I that I made friends with and spoke to specifically on this subject, a lot of them were of the belief that the Japanese government was at fault for the dropping of the bombs. Now, I'm not going to say that everyone agrees with that because not everyone does. And maybe that's a unpopular or, or a more modern view, but um, some of them were of the opinion, many of them were of the opinion that the Japanese government was at fault for the dropping of the bombs for not accepting surrender to begin with. That, and that is in line with a lot of things that at least I feel like from reading some personal accounts, I'm actually reminded of, I don't know, has any ever heard of the, it's also a movie, but there's this also manga known as Barefoot Gen. So Barefoot Gen is this manga, and it's also been turned into a movie, and it's been made into also a live action movie, oddly enough, but it is a retelling, not an exact retelling, but it is a retelling of this author who wrote it about his experience of Hiroshima and as a child. One of the big things that you'll notice in that movie, and they emphasize that especially in the movie, is this very big difference between the citizens and the imperial government and how the imperial government seems completely oblivious to the needs of the people. The people don't want this war. The people don't want to continue with this war. And instead, the people have to suffer for the actions of the government instead of what they wanted. 
Yeah, so that's kind of like a big theme. I'm not surprised by that attitude. No, that that sounds like an interesting uh, bit of, uh, uh, honestly, historical fiction based off of somebody's real life experience. So that that's something we can definitely include in our in our sources in the show notes. Um, so if anyone is interested, uh, we'll we'll try and include a link or at least a, a page or a, something that 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 kind of highlights that. Um, that's that's pretty interesting. What uh, one thing that really stood out to me was that, and and I think uh, you know we this is something we had discussed um, prior to sitting down and recording was when when we talked about and the selection of the site for the dropping of the first nuclear weapon and 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 uh, human history was the fact that Hiroshima was untouched; it had remained largely intact and uh was a bustling large city and when the decision was made to drop a bomb one of the things that they took into consideration was the fact that there was a large large potential for loss of human life and uh, that's really hard to to swallow knowing that even then um in 1945 one of the factors that played into their selection of Hiroshima was the 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 expected loss of life and they wanted it to be they wanted it to be impactful and and when you consider that um and, and the effects it had on the civilian population that's that's really alarming so what that brings us to is really uh looking at the timeline of the operation this was very premeditated obviously back we said in April uh the the targeting committee sat down and and they de- determined a site for the dropping of the bomb so if we fast forward all the way to August 6th um the operation began at uh 2:45 a.m. on August 6th and the operation departed from the Pacific, Pacific island of Tenian about 1,500 miles from Okinawa, which was, you know, um, we're talking about range as it goes uh, in regards to the bombers. And it was led by Colonel Paul Tibbetts and the B-29, the Enola Gay, which is famously named for his mother. Um, This was a small entourage of B-29s, totaling three, and the Enola Gay carried the bomb known as Little Boy. So they took off, and at 0715... The bomb was armed, and the Enola Gay began its ascent to 31,000 feet. Now, the Enola Gay needed to be far enough from the hypocenter that they would not be too rocked by the blast um, and, and, and had the potential to escape. Now, it is notable that all three B-29s and the crew were aware of the fact that they might be caught in the blast, not knowing the, the potential of, of destruction, but also not knowing if they would make it back to Tenian, uh, given, given the extreme range of the bombers. The Enola Gay arrived over Hiroshima at 0814 in the morning, and bombardier Thomas Farabee used the Ioi Bridge as an aiming point. The Ioi Bridge uh, was a T-shaped construction, and it sat uh, fairly in the heart of Hiroshima. So not only did it shape really lend to an excellent aiming point given the T-shape, but it was also a great aiming point considering it was in the heart of Hiroshima. Bombardier Thomas Farabee allowed the bomb to fall away at 0815. Little boy fell nearly six miles in 43 seconds. From Haruko Tayakuk and Dr. Theodore F. Cook's excellent book, which I've already referenced, Japan at War, an oral history. 
at precisely 8.15 a.m. on August 6, 1945. One of a group of three B-29s dropped a bomb over the center of Hiroshima from an altitude of 8,500 meters. The bomb was three meters in length, 0.7 meters in diameter, and weighed four metric tons. It was detonated at an altitude of 590 meters. The fission of the 0.85 kilograms of uranium contained in the bomb released energy equivalent to the explosive force of 13,000 tons of TNT. Bombardier Farabee was deadly accurate, and the bomb detonated over the top of a surgical clinic only 500 meters from the IOA bridge, which was his aiming point. Less than 2% of the bomb's uranium achieved nuclear fission. I really want that to sink in. Less than 2% of the actual uranium achieved nuclear fission. Now, I'm not a physicist. I don't understand the science behind all of this. But what I see is the bomb could have been so much more destructive than it was. I will briefly say, um, with regard to what fission is, every atom has a nucleus. So the nucleus is going to be composed of protons and neutrons, and then you're also going to have your electrons in the outer field. What fission is, is when a larger nucleus is split into smaller nuclei. That's a very TLDR of what fission is. And so how this occurs is by what you're going to have are these fast-moving neutrons. So some neutrons are going to be shot very fast at this nucleus. And once it bombards, and and it's not just going to be one, it's going to be many. They're going to bombard it. And then that's going to create it to cause to split. Now, what you hope is, what, what you hope is to cause is like this chain reaction. Say, like, in this case, you've got this uranium isotope. And so you have this nucleus, so you're going to send all these neutrons at it. And so they hit. And so then the atom splits. Okay, so that releases more neutrons. And so what you're hoping is for these neutrons to be released fast enough to hit the now two smaller molecules, or not molecules, sorry, atoms, and that that will cause those atoms to split. And then hopefully you cause a chain reaction here, and that's known as critical mass. And that's what you're hoping for. The Now, of course, some of this mass is going to be lost over the course of this. And that mass is what gets converted into energy, causing the very explosive reaction that you see there. So that's just a bit of an explanation of what fission is going on here. So less than 2%. I actually don't know uh, what the actual but the best case scenario you can with for uranium here. but So that less than 2% wasn't necessarily intentional? No. Like the... No. Okay. You, that's kind of the thing about science is not everything works as you would theoretically, mm. <laughs> as it theoretically should. Yeah. And, uh, and that, that seems to be the case here. I don't know what ex- exactly that rate would be, what the, t- the max rate would be. Because they all, because different isotopes and different atoms will have different success rates of how much you can actually get it to fission. And when you say something with fission, that means you got that critical mass that you've got this repeating factor. This atom then splits into two, and that splits into more. I hope that makes sense. Uh, as much as I can process it, yeah. yes, <laughs> I, I, and I do appreciate the explanation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. Even still, looking at the fact that, yes, you've got less than a kilogram of uranium and less than 2% of that achieve nuclear fission, the destruction, 
the the destruction was devastating. Temperatures on the ground reached 7,000 degrees Fahrenheit, and Japanese citizens up to a half mile away from the hypocenter were instantly vaporized. Hiroshima's population at the time was 255,000. Best estimates placed the death toll at approximately 65,000. Injury estimates are approximately 69,000, together totaling a casualty rate of 135,000 of Hiroshima's population of 255,000. Five to six years after the bombings, the incidence of leukemia increased noticeably among survivors. What this means is five to six years after the bombing, there were still casualties from the blast, from the after effects. It's a lot to take in. It's certainly kind of a, it's a very sad moment. The sheer destruction and loss of life is hard to process um, in the modern world. It, it, it truly is. I mean, that's not even taking guess... into consideration the, the psychological impact of oh. um, civilians at the time and also, you know, how they would have had to deal with that. Like, so the survivors of the, of the bombing, like, years and years later, like, how do we know that there weren't a lot of, you know, suicides or anything related to that, that, you know, they were struggling with the trauma of dealing with the bomb as well. Like that's not even necessarily always taken into consideration when these um, statistics come up. No, I, I think that's a very good point. There's no way to really account for the secondary and tertiary uh, loss of life that, that, that was caused by, by the dropping of the bomb. Uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, the bomb did make a big impact and ingrained it because like, that's where inspirations for Godzilla came from. Godzilla was a commentary on the bombing. And mm. and then of course I mentioned barefoot Gin. Yeah, that's also a direct <laughs> from that. So the bombing has had a very big impact. Oh, absolutely! Just, uh, it it not only permeated society, you know, on a on a on a on a on a personal level, but it permeated society uh, long term. When you talk about even you know not just the culture, but the entertainment and the art. And the humanities that came out of, of such a terrible event. I always, I always remember this one survivor. And in this person's account, they go into detail about how, due to this incident, they are very angry how we lived in this world where, again, referring to that distinction between citizens and the imperial government, how adults are just making careless choices and the children have to pay. And her only hope is that in the future, we just could, we strive for peace just for the sake of our children. That's a very powerful thing to think about. I, I feel that it's very powerful to think about with regard to that. Oh, that's a, that's a very fair point. I mean, even looking back, you know, uh, to the fact that, yeah, five to six years after the bombings, leukemia increased incidences of. You, you consider the women that were pregnant at the time and um, how that impacted uh, unborn children and the children that were born into that environment as Hiroshima was rebuilding and nuclear fallout and radiation was still a factor. It's, it's, it's multi-generational. I kind of just briefly wanted to read this, uh, this person's uh, own words just because I feel they're very powerful. She said that the war was caused by the selfish misdeeds of adults. Many children fell victim because of it. Alas, this is the case today. Us adults must do everything we can to protect the lives and dignity of our children. 
children are our greatest blessing. This, yeah, this bombing really made the, a very deep impact on just mothers and on children. Has really caused this almost effort to just strive for peace. That's usually what I hear from most survivors, anyway, is the striving for peace that we should try to do. Right, right, and 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 I mean that goes into the building of some of the museums and the monuments and and even some of the websites that are accessible. I mean, massive Hiroshima uh, peace memorial uh, efforts, you know, um, shortly after and, and to this day still persist. And I think a lot of times that we, we tend to view things from a strategic and a more cold clinical result-based uh, point of view where, yeah, how effective was how many lives were saved because of what was the outcome and and so many times we forget the human element of warfare and specifically in this in this case the human element is in my mind it's everything because that's exactly what the united states was hoping uh to target and 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 to take advantage of what's the human element i mean it's it's stated clearly that in this letter from one of the collaborators, that, that physicist Edward Teller, that for the actual purpose, combat use might be the best thing in order to convince everyone of the destructive power, in order to convince everyone that the war needs to stop. And that was the intent. But what it took was the loss of innocent life. And yeah, I, I've got this, I've got this book, and, and I know that uh, Walla has some sources that, that I'm, I'm really looking forward to, to hearing you speak on and, and within the same vein, but I've got this great book that I found uh, at a thrift store or at an at a antique store, I can't remember, but it's called The Hiroshima Diary, and it's the journal of a Japanese physician. Uh, his name is uh, Michihiko Hachiya, and at the time of the dropping of the bomb, he was the director of the Hiroshima Communications Hospital, which was very close to the hypo center. And what I found to be very interesting was... Uh, just in the initial pages of of his book, which was never intended to be published, this this was purely meant to be his own journal, which an American actually um, found to be relevant and thought that the world needed to hear. He opens his his journal, his diary, on the morning of the bombing, and he describes the morning of prior to just moments before the bomb dropped. And he said, the hour was early, the morning still warm and beautiful. Shimmering leaves, reflecting sunlight from a cloudless sky, made a pleasant contrast with shadows in my garden as I gazed absently through wide-flung doors opening to the south. So here's this man sitting in his garden in the early hours, because remember the bomb dropped and detonated uh, just after 8.15. On August 6th, sitting in his garden, just reflecting on the fact that it was a beautiful morning, enjoying enjoying his time. And uh, he had just worked a night on duty as an air raid warden in the hospital. Gotten off duty, gone home. And he goes on to say, suddenly a strong flash of light startled me. And then another. So well does one recall little things. And I remember vividly how a stone lantern in the garden became brilliantly lit. And I debated whether this light was caused by a magnesium flare or sparks from a passing tram. He goes on to say that the shadows in the garden disappeared. And the view that he had a moment before, where all had been so bright and sunny, was now dark and hazy. He had to look through swirling dust, and he could barely discern a wooden column that had supported one corner of his house. 
It was leaning crazily and the roof sagged dangerously. He goes on to realize that on his right side, which had faced towards the hypocenter, his clothes had been blown off and he was pierced with shards of glass and wood and he was bleeding profusely from the neck and his thigh. And he had no concept of what had just happened to him. And just that moment alone, to consider that, to be off of a night shift, to be sitting in your garden, enjoying your morning, and the next thing, to be dazed, looking through dust, and bleeding, is unimaginable. It, it, that is very similar to like a lot of the other accounts that I have read, is usually the day is just unsettling normal. No air raids, no sirens, nothing. And then, boom, a white light. And then... Whatever happens to them after that, some just get like, there was one case where this person, they were just girls outside of their bomb shelter. Mm -hmm. And then boom, and they just get launched straight back into their uh, bomb shelter and knock them out. They only have, they wake up later only to look at the wreckage. And then you have some people, this one guy, he was just at a factory and then, and then suddenly this, he just notices this whole building just coming down on him. And so he gets down and he thinks, this is the moment I'm going to die. And then everything just stops. And then he gets out and it's eerily quiet. And all he can see is just a devastated place. And so, yeah, it's, it, it was like this flip switch. And you don't mm. even realize just how hurt you are or hurt. And it's just unimaginable just to take in everything that just happened because it all just happened so fast. Right, right. The disorientation is just. It's got to be, how do you process something like that? And, you know, um, oh, I was just going to say, especially since like everyone was, well, mostly everyone was just going about their day um, in the morning. They mm. weren't expecting anything like that um, to happen. Um, like I recall from one of the sources that I looked into, there was an account of um, uh, this little girl who was just sitting and reading her book and she noticed there was three planes flying over and um, she turned on the radio just to kind of tune in to um, find out what was happening and she kind of just assumed like it's just three planes like what's the big deal um, like it's not of if it's like a hundred planes flying over um, so taking that into consideration, she kind of just turned off the radio, went back to reading her book, and then all of a sudden, it's again, it's that band of white light fell down right from the right from the sky down to the trees, and it's just all over from there. Yeah, it's 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 hard to process. Yeah, I mean, you see three you see three planes flying over, and it's hardly an air raid, right? Like, yeah, what are three planes? It's incredible to consider the destructive nature of that single bomb because only one bomb was dropped. One bomb. And that's just and that's just the just the bombing itself. Like that there's the after effect. Like many people talk about that there was briefly these drops of rain of a, a dirty rain, and that's really just the dirt and dust collected uh due to the bombings in the sky. So like there's little acid rainfall. <laughs> Briefly, after, in the immediate so after, and then of course, just some people. I, I I'll never forget. Um, this goes back again to Barefoot Gen. In Barefoot Gen, you'll see graphic images of people like with their eyeballs coming out of their sockets. And I remember when I first watched it, I was like, "That's not that that can't happen." And then only to real to read 
personal witness accounts about it, and that's how they that's what happened though. There were some people who had, did have eyes coming out of their sockets. There were deformed, burned people just raiding the streets. That on top of just now you have to deal with trying to take care of yourself. There's a fire everywhere. You mentioned about reading from that diary, like they had a fire at the hospital. Yes. Oh, so soon, did. quickly. And so you, ha you have all this, just everything bad happening at once. And it's, it is kind of just heartbreaking and breathtaking just to consider it. Yeah. I guess one thing to add, like on top of this, you didn't just have like Japanese citizens suffer under this. There were also Japanese Americans yes. who were in Japan during this time, and they were killed by this bomb. U.S. POWs were killed in Hiroshima due to this dropping of this bomb, and they all died under this. And it's I, sad in one way because, like, I can't remember, like, Hiroshima obviously was like a military training. It had some affiliation with the military, but it wasn't exactly the most extravagantly militarized site. No, not it by was, any means. It was mostly a lot of just unarmed people. Those are the ones who suffered most for these bombs. Yeah, and that's, the, that's what made it so devastating. Good. I think that's what made it so devastating. It's like you're saying, yeah, the people suffered. The government did not. The, the soldiers did not. No military complex, true military complex, suffered. Not only is there confusion after a massive bomb like that, but you consider the fact that this is a new technology. And the effects of this new technology, especially to those suffering in Hiroshima, they, they didn't know what had hit them. They didn't know what had hit them. And, you know, reading through this diary of this physician, as, as he recovered in the hospital, you know, the, their big push and their priority was obviously to treat patients. And it, it's, it's really disheartening uh, reading through and, and seeing that he talks about that everything was in disorder. And he, he goes on to say that to make matters worse, there was vomiting and diarrhea. Patients who could not walk urinated and def defecated where they lay. And at this time, they thought that there was a massive outbreak of dysentery in the hospital. What they didn't know at the time is that all of these individuals were suffering, suffering from radiation sickness, from radiation poisoning due to the nature of the bomb, right? Nuclear bomb. But mm -hmm. they didn't know this at the time. So here we have these doctors, these nurses, these medical professionals doing everything they can to separate patients, the healthy from the sick, as best you can, considering everyone's ill, trying to treat an illness that is so far off the mark because they don't understand the nature of the weapon that's been used against them. The movie, uh, again, I keep referring to, I don't want to keep referring it to it so much, but like uh, Barefoot Gen, it, they often, it often emphasize this point by having one scene where the doctor's like, how can one bomb cause all of this? As <laughs> they're having to make the choices of like, who to, who to help? Because like, they had to have limited resources, so like, they can't help everyone. Like, so they had to choose like, who's the most likely to recover and help those? Well, I know you had a really great source, uh, I think specific to a nurse uh, that, that, that survived oh, yeah. and treated patients um, during this during Hiroshima yeah so well it's actually um an invited commentary written by um Ryoko Ohara um and she had actually interviewed 15 retired um war relief nurses who were eyewitnesses okay. um to the bombing which is I find is often 
a story left untold from the perspective of medical personnel in military history it is so underreported in history and i think that's it's mm. really um heartbreaking so i felt the need to bring up this to bring up this source because i feel like it's so important to kind of remind everyone that there was more than just military combatants there, there, there were victims um outside of yeah military but also there were victims outside of the bombing that, that had to deal with the after effects of the bombing yeah yeah and not only that was because at the time especially hearing from a woman's perspective during much mm. of the early 20th century ryoko states it in in their work women were politically and socially oppressed often unable to freely tell of their experiences as well so that's also another reason why i think this kind of thing is really important to kind of uh retell in her invited commentary she kind of talks about this it's a concept known as interminable hell um it's also referred to as Avicii hell, um, which is one of the seven hells that exists in Buddhist religion. Um, and each of the seven hells, one endures punishment for one's actions in life. Um, and she often refers to that concept um, throughout her article um, to kind of describe basically how victims, how the survivors were kind of interpreting the situation around them. Like it was an actual hell that they had experienced after the bombing. So I thought that was quite an interesting kind of religious aspect also that applies to... Uh, it's, it's that concept of there's no need to fear hell because it's already here. That's really difficult. That reminds me of... Uh, sorry, I don't mean to interrupt. Um, it, it does remind me of another story. <laughs> another eyewitness story of how just this religious aspect they wanted to bury their father but in the condition that they found their father in apparently one half of his was uh entirely cremated just from the blast the other half was rotting so they tried to like take his skull and as soon as they touched the skull it like cracked like uh ceramic pottery and his brain just spilled out and then the boys had to run because they're just so scared and terrified by this and they felt so bad because they left their father just rotting there yeah um oh, that's horrific I, th there must have been so many instances of survivors seeing those that had had been deceased or were well on their way and and that helplessness i mean you talk about the effects of the bomb you talk about yeah the radiation long term or even short term in the days that followed but the 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 blast and then you have the heat god the heat must have been just overwhelming when you talk about the hypocenter reaching 7,000 degrees, that's hard, that's hard to imagine. Then you also have, you know, these instances of survivors talking about seeking water, trying to find water, uh, walking with their arms raised like zombies so that they could keep their burn skin from scraping across the fabric of their clothes as they search for some type of, of respite. Just, again, going back to, to what Walla presented with, with her source talking about the interminable hell and and what that must have been like i mean some of these people must have seemed like zombies must have seemed like the walking dead and a lot of them were oh yeah and the nurses they they felt so helpless and distressed because they just had no alternative sometimes they can't like there were so many people that they just couldn't help um because at the time they they weren't 
as I think as we mentioned earlier, um, they weren't sure what was actually happening. Like they know a bomb dropped, but what it actually was, it took them a long time to kind of discern how to actually treat people and such. So that must have been really difficult um, for nurses at the time, you know, feeling – because, like, their primary role is to, you know, to help sick people, you know, stop them from dying and things like that. But to actually, you know, not being able to do anything sometimes in some cases, that's just – I can't even imagine how hard that must have been. And mm. Ryoko does a really good job of kind of summarizing their experiences in in that way. You know, just just talking about the radiation sickness, but and as you said earlier, Spartan, talking about how you know they were kind of like some victims were kind of um, uh, defecating and urinating in their spot. You know, um, like the relief personnel initially um, thought that they were affected by dysentery rather than yeah. anything else so it's 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 a lot to consider so it, it's i think it's also um interesting that considering the fact that this bomb really leveled flattened uh from east to west north to south the the city of hiroshima they not only were devastated by a new technology but you consider communications they no longer had that option there was there was no way for them to communicate with the outside world. Um, and, and what's interesting about that is um, shortly, shortly after, within, within 24 hours of the dropping of this bomb, then-President Harry Truman uh, released a statement regarding the uh, dropping uh, and the detonation of the first nuclear bomb in human history. Uh, and he, he, he states, 16 hours ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima, an important Japanese army base. Notice he states army base, not taking into consideration or even willing to give the truth of the, the, the civilian population that lived there. Goes on to state that that bomb had more power than 20,000 tons of TNT. It had more than 2,000 times the blast power of the British Grand Slam, which is the largest bomb ever yet used in the history of warfare. He goes on to say, the Japanese began the war from the air at Pearl Harbor. They have been repaid many fold, and the end is not yet. With this bomb, we have now added a new and revolutionary increase in destruction to supplement the growing power of our armed forces. In their present form, these bombs are now in production, and even more powerful forms are in development. So here we have an active threat, not just to Japan, but to much of the world. He, can, he, he goes on, and I'll leave it here. It is an atomic bomb. It is a harnessing of the basic power of the universe. The force from which the sun draws its power has been loosed against those who brought war to the Far East. That statement is so clinical, impersonal, intimidating. Um, it's, it's hard to read even now. And here we have the people of Hiroshima totally unaware of what's happened to them. I think with Truman, and as you read that, I have often read that Truman never took, like, he never had second thoughts about the bombing. It's one of those things to me, like, was he just very proud about dropping the bomb? Like, was he just proud of having this kind of weapon to boast about? And that the U.S. had that weapon. I don't know. I don't know where that thought really was going with anywhere, but it, like, saddens me that that's really what is the big point to take away from here. We have the big weapon. We have, like, the Death Star, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, 
I think Truman did state at some point uh, he regarded he regarded the atomic bomb as um, a weapon in which he never had any doubt that it should have been used. I, I don't know if there was any pride. I don't know if there was any remorse. I don't. I don't. I can't imagine yeah. uh, being responsible for the immediate loss of over sixty thousand lives. And the subsequent loss of many more later. That that's that. I don't know if that's something that that can ever be truly answered. That's that's between him and and his creator, if you will. Um, you know, that's that's a tough one. But and and the statements his, he made, it's hard to see that there was any remorse there. Definitely, his decision um, would definitely not go without being, I guess, unchallenged. Maybe that's not the right word here, but I know. Um, Oxford was going to give an honorary degree to him in somewhere in the 1950s. However, that degree would be opposed by someone, and I'm probably going to garble her name, but GME uh, Anscombe. And she was part of the uh, philosophy of ethics department at Oxford. And she was, and she even wrote a whole pamphlet about why Truman not only shouldn't be given an honorary degree, honorary degree but because on the grounds that he was a murderer wow. and i mean yeah straight up just coined him a murderer and he was a murderer because choosing to kill the innocent as a means to your ends is always murder and that was her ethical point her uh her thesis and her argument that she made and so <laughs> truman certainly would be getting a lot of flack later and what's also said like as I said before, and I just want to say this again because this isn't talked about a lot, Japanese citizens weren't also the only ones affected by here. Japanese Americans who were just in Hiroshima just simply on a uh, for college reasons, for university studies. It's true. They, they died in this blast. There were, again, 12 U.S. prisoners of war killed in this bombing of Hiroshima. It's as, almost as if... This is like calling those people not citizens of the United States and just throwing away their contributions just because they just get bombed. It was mm. one of the odd reflection questions that some people had, like this person's grandfather was one of the Japanese Americans in Hiroshima when the bomb fell. And it's like, so what were they saying about him being a citizen in Amer of America? Were they really considering him as that? Like, how do you fit that? <laughs> How do you think about a nation that dropped your bond on your, on your, on your own citizens? That's very true. I mean, it comes down to uh, uh, collateral damage and acceptable loss, right? When, when looking at military calculation and military thought processes and the decision-making process. And that's, I think, dif that's difficult. I think I'll end like, on that note with that. This, that seems to be a big difference between how the discussions evolve around the bombings here in the U.S. versus in Japan. In the mm. U.S., it's always treating the Japanese as a subject, very impersonal. But then over there, it's like a very lived experience, which almost a no-duh statement, but like it's treated as personal cost of what the bombs do to a society is considered. Whereas here in the West, the the more abstract framework is often discussed. And debated. Right. Other than I just love uh, GME Anscombe. She she went on a tear on Truman. It really sounds like it, yeah. Following the detonation and subsequent destruction caused by Little Boy, the task of collecting the bodies and burning them, clearing the rubble and debris, 
and caring for the injured began. According to HiroshimaForPeace.com, it took nine months to restore water supply to the outskirts of the city. In total, 2.4 million square miles had to be cleared and surveyed, a process that took four years. Restoration of housing and other basic facilities took about two years. In 1949, the Hiroshima Peace Memorial City Construction Law was enacted, and the Display Hall, today's main building of the Hiroshima Peace Memorial Museum, and the Peace Memorial Hall, today's Peace Memorial Museum's East Building, were completed. Since being rebuilt after the war, Hiroshima has become the largest city in the Chugoku region of Western Honshu. This concludes the first episode of Heart Attack. Uh, we ask that you bear with us as, again, this is our first episode, and we're trying to iron out some of our uh, sound quality and, and production intricacies. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. And if you would like to continue the discussion or add to it, you can find us on the Historical Studies Military History Discord, Twitter, or Instagram, all available through our link tree found in the episode description. Join us Wednesday next week for Episode 2, Knights of the Long Knives, where we will explore the events of Hitler's 1934 purge of Nazi leaders. Thank you for listening, and remember to keep your hard tack dry.